It's with great pleasure that I welcome our guest today, Dharmesh Shah, founder and CTO at HubSpot. Dharmesh is a wonderful participant in the startup ecosystem and has been for a very, very long time. Um, we have followed each other's work for many, many, many years, and, and we share an alma mater, MIT. So uh, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show, Dharmesh. Welcome. Uh, thrilled to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, and I think it goes back. It has to be like over 15 years or something like that. I can kind of recall oh, back on the early days when we were just getting uh, getting this started. Yeah, we were blogging in the beginning. Remember? I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Malik actually got me started with blogging. He's like, "Yo, oh, you're so opinionated. You have to start blogging." I'm like, "What is blogging?" <laughs> yeah. So uh, I am going to spend a significant amount of today's show, depending on how much time Dharmesh can spare for us, um, to really capture his story, his lessons from the trenches, and his insights, both the entrepreneurial journey as well as uh, his insights on angel investing. So those of you who are following this or listening to the recording, that is what you will expect from the next hour or perhaps even a bit more. So. We will start at the very beginning of your journey, Dharmesh. What, uh, where did you grow up? What kind of upbringing? What kind of circumstances were you raised in? Uh, I know you come from a part of India that is particularly entrepreneurial, so, um, so I'm sure that has something to do with it. But tell us a bit more about your childhood. Sure. Um, so I was born in a small town in Gujarat called Ankleshwar. Um, when I say small, I mean like really, really small. So, uh, you know, no paved streets, no traffic lights, no hospital. Uh, so I was born uh, with a midwife at my mom's uh, uh, mom's family side of the house. Um, and then I lived uh, my early years in the town called Billimora, which is not that far away, also in Gujarat, uh, near Surat, if people are familiar with, uh, with Gujarat. And um, the funny thing is, you know, you mentioned entrepreneurship being kind of in the water and in the blood, um, so to speak. If you had talked to any of my family, uh, any of my friends, anyone that knew me, um, uh, I would have been kind of picked the last person or least likely to actually ever start a company. That was just not my, not my personality. I was a very quiet kid, um, and I wasn't, you know, all the kind of attributes people associate with entrepreneurship in terms of being extroverted and being able to sell, being able to kind of hustle and bustle and get things done. Um, I was the exact opposite of those things. Uh, so it was. Uh, a little bit surprising uh, to many, including myself, that I actually would wind up being an entrepreneur. I was an unlikely one. Um, but you know, my my childhood was relatively modest. Um, you know, the you know the house that I grew up in, in my early years uh, didn't have TV, didn't have hot running water, so we had to kind of heat the water up on a uh, in a pail and take it to the bathroom to get hot water. So it was uh, it was modest, I will say. Not, um, but um, then you know, my my dad came over. Um, on a student visa over to the United States, uh, and he came alone because that's how immigration worked back then. My mom and I kind of stayed in India for a little while, and so I got to spend some years when I came, um, you know, over. I think I was five or six years old, and uh, you know, spent some time here in the States, uh, spent some time in Canada, and then uh, right in high school, um, the entire family moved back to back to India for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is my uh, grandfather passed away, so we wanted to kind of support my grandmother, and so I had uh, you know, two siblings at the time, and so we all just kind of packed our bags, left Canada, 
uh, and went back to India and I enrolled in high school there. So I had uh, high school in India um, and did a couple of years of undergrad in, uh, in India and in mechanical engineering uh, of all things. Uh, because I'm not mechanical at all. I have, you know, you know, India is one of those things you kind of take the, take the board exams. At least this is how it works in Gujarat. I think it works fair elsewhere. It's kind of on a rank system, so you get to kind of choose based on what your score is of these kind of disciplines that you have access to. Um, and that was the best kind of engineering-ish thing I could get into. Um, so that's what I did, and I came over. And then we'll kind of get into the entrepreneurial part of the story, but. Um, so my parents had, you know, subsequently while I was an undergrad, moved back to the United States. They were here, living here permanently. And I was living uh, with my grandmother and family um, in India, and I came to visit them, um, you know, while during the summer of my second year in college. And uh, and people had al always told me it's like that I'm actually really like math, which I do, um, and and so you should check out this quote unquote computer stuff. And you know, it's like okay, I'd heard of them. You know, I, I, my high school had zero computers. Uh, my engineering Sorry. college, which was a big college, over a thousand students, had I think four computers, uh, and I never got to once touch any of those computers because they were off limits, except for um, you know people that were seniors uh, further along. And and you know we don't think about this here in the United States that much, but you know computers outside of just buying the computer, which is expensive, uh, running a computer in India is ex actually expensive because you have to have an air conditioned room. It has to be relatively clean yeah. in order to kind of keep the computer running. So I never got a chance to you know touch a computer while while I was in uh, high school or undergrad. So I came here and, um, you know, my, my family was living in uh, Indiana, uh, the state of Indiana, and nearby uh, there was uh, Purdue University and they had summer classes on like an introduction to computers kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, well, people have always told me I should check this out, so I, I'm gonna go check it out. I enrolled in the, and this was the proverbial kind of love at first sight moment, right? It's like, like from the day I first sat down with a computer, I'm like, like, this is it. This is the thing I am meant to do, I am supposed to do. Um, and so even though I had not packed any of my things, you know, I was scheduled to just be there for the summer and go back and kind of resume my engineering college there. I literally just, I didn't go back, right? I'm like, okay, whatever I need, I'll buy here. And I enrolled myself uh, that fall into uh, undergrad computer science. Um, it's like, this is this is my path now. And I uh, haven't looked back. I've, it's uh, I was fortunate to kind of find that Kind of that love um that passion early on um i think i would have probably likely discovered computers uh might have been another five or ten years but it was nice um you know not as early as i would have liked i would have liked to have kind of grown up with it uh as my son is now doing he's 10 years old but uh but yeah that's my story and so then uh so i've been in computer software for pretty much most of my you know professional life uh, but that, that's the story yeah so um and you did University of Alabama for computer science, and then you did an MBA at MIT, yeah? Yeah, so I started computer science at the at uh, in at Purdue um, for the first years that okay. my family happened to be, and then I transferred down to, uh, I moved down to Alabama. Um, it's a long story, it's not that great of a story. And then, uh, so finished my computer science degree at University of Alabama, Birmingham, and uh, then did my MS in the management of technology at, uh, at MIT, at Sloan. Mm -hmm. And uh, that brings us to what year? That brings us to, I will say, 93, I'm going to say. Well, no, that catches us up to 2004, uh, 2004, yeah. 2004, okay. So, uh, well, I mean, something happened in between, right? So you must have done something else. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I, I did two startups, right? One, um, 
in the mid nineties. That was my first one. I was 24 years old at the time. My co-founder was 17 and a half. Um, didn't know anything about business or startups or financing or anything. This was in Birmingham, Alabama, which was not the kind of startup center of the universe by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and so, and this was, I guess, an early lesson, which is, um, you know, we automatically assume that entrepreneurship requires this kind of deep kind of well of knowledge, right? That's like, oh, you have to get certified in entrepreneurship in order to be able to go start a company. And, and yes, it's helpful to know things. And it's, and it's amazing the content um, you know, that you deliver and that that's out, out there now. Uh, but back then, there was, you know, there was no internet. There was no. I wasn't there. I, I have to say, you know, I, I had to make so many mistakes to learn yeah. the basics. Which now we can teach in like one hour, basically. I know. I, it's in a way, it's actually harder for entrepreneurs now than it was then. So then, nobody knew anything. So you weren't really expected to know much if you were a first-time entrepreneur, and right. you kind of learned as you went, and it was fine. Entrepreneurs today have a little bit harder because there's so much material out there. The expectation is that you have at least absorbed some of the material that's readily available. Uh-huh. Otherwise, you're just going to be at a disadvantage versus your versus your peer group. But uh, yeah, I started my first. You know, it was a software company. Uh, no surprise there. In enter- it was an enterprise CRM um, in the financial services sector, and uh, bootstrapped it. Um, and kind of, yes, yeah, so it was self-funded. And, and I was the founder CEO of that company for a little over ten years, um, and then ultimately sold it to a much bigger uh, financial services software company, tech company, um, and then decided to go back to grad school. So that's kind of what happened in the, in the intervening uh, intervening years. But yeah. And was it a meaningful exit? Were you going into grad school with some money, or were you? It, it yeah. was. Uh, so I, you know, roughly open and transparent. So I, um, you know, the acquisition price was around fifteen million dollars, uh, all closely held. Um, so, and the one thing I've kind of discovered about money is that, you know, the, the kind of the first, and wherever you kind of happen to draw the line based on you know what part of the world you live in, uh, different amounts mean different things. But at least for me, like. Like the first four or five million dollars is like literally just life changing, right? It's like okay, well, you don't have to work anymore. You have the ability to kind of do a few things, um, and so uh, once you kind of cross that mark, you you know, I wasn't in debt anyway. I don't really believe in debt, but um, but that was a life changing amount of money, and that and, and that was kind of partly the motivation for going back to grad school because uh, during undergrad, um, I was working full time the whole way through, right? So I take night courses and weekend courses, and it took me seven years. Uh, I almost had to do some of those early classes again because it, the uh, curricula had kind of expired um, you know, later and they were going to take away some of those credits. But it took me seven years to get my, you know, what should be a four-year degree. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I went into grad school, my I made the deliberate decision that I was going to be like a real student, right? I wasn't going to work. I didn't have to work. Uh, yeah. I was going to be a legitimate grad student uh, and just apply myself. And I've always loved academics. Uh, so this was not a big, uh, big sacrifice. So, and, uh, and I'd always had this aspiration to go to MIT. You know, it's partly why I moved to the Boston area. And I moved to the Boston area in 99 and didn't apply to MIT until like five years later where the stars kind of aligned. I was able to sell my prior company, uh, which freed up the time and uh, and the capital to, to go do it, but yeah. Well, and also um, I think the having a little bit of money to bootstrap a company, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of bridging into the HubSpot story to start another company that's a world of difference, right? Yeah. You don't, you're not scrambling. You're not having to, you know, like we were talking about before we started this conversation. Um, 
you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are bootstrapping with a paycheck right now. So they yep. are working. They're doing what you did during your undergraduate. They're working their uh, their day jobs, and they're doing nights and weekends to validate a startup idea. They're also doing all the learning on the job of the methodology building blocks, which now people expect that they would know because there are so much resources out there. So um, not having to do all that and being able to focus 100% on a venture when, you, when you're a bit further along in your journey and have a bit of resources to fund that you know, first whatever, 18 months, 24 months of your journey makes a massive, massive difference. Yeah, one thing I'll, I'll add, so you know, I had two startups before HubSpot, um, you know, my first one, and in the first one it was bootstrapped, self-funded, um, and then I did a second one before the first one had actually sold, and this is like the biggest mistake of my professional career is trying to be founder CEO of two startups that at the same time, um, but you know, when I did my second one, I had made some money, uh, even though I hadn't had an exit yet, uh, the company, my first company had done reasonably well, and so I wrote the first million dollar seed check for my second startup, right? I'm like, okay, well, mm -hmm. I don't have to do the scrappy bootstrap stuff anymore. I've got some cash. I'm just going to self-fund this and do my second startup idea. Uh, and the one thing, and this didn't kind of, the lesson didn't really hit for me until uh, years later, but when I did my second startup, the automatic assumption I had in my head is that everything I did in my first one was a mistake. And because I didn't know anything, because I didn't have access to capital, and so in the second one, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do it completely differently this time. I'm going to start off with a million dollars in capital. I'm going to not make some of the quote-unquote mistakes. And the lesson learned was a lot of the things I did in that first startup, despite being ignorant um, about business, the right thing. were the best things, right? It's like, oh, yeah. running, you know, uh, running lean and being you know, relatively frugal, uh, being kind of mindful and just being focused. All those were good things. So... Uh, and we'll talk about HubSpot in a little bit, but so HubSpot is what happened as a result of uh, not swinging the pendulum too far the other way. So I took the best lessons I got from my first startup. It's like, okay, let's be disciplined about this. Um, and, and But still, it's like, let's be more ambitious. And uh, so it's the best of both worlds in my mind. But that first uh, first startup experience, you know, in those 10 years, um, I learned a lot. Uh, and and uh, all modesty aside, we got a fair number of things right. Uh, we got the culture right. Uh, you know, we were focused on the customer and solving real problems. Uh, we were scrappy about it. Um, yeah, so, and, and we're trying to carry those into, into HubSpot now. Yeah. You know, I, my take on, on all this is it's, it's a good idea to think about your entrepreneurial journey, especially early on, in terms of a serial entrepreneurship journey. You know, very few people have the kind of hits that a Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, or Steve Jobs have had as a first company becoming their life's work. Yeah. Um, so I think for most entrepreneurs, thinking of, um, you know, doing something that is more manageable, that you, okay, you don't have track, track record, you have no option but to bootstrap, okay, bootstrap and get to some level of success and then, you know, gradually build on your dream. I mean, one of my favorite case studies is Sridhar Vembu's story. He built this network management software, you know, for 15 years before even starting to build out Zoho. And look at Zoho now. He could yeah. do it all without a penny of outside capital. So, Amazing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what you're echoing here is that you were you had a lot more flexibility. And, and and, and basically the point of having some resources is that freedom to be able to do things differently and do things without those 
you know, existential pressures. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that that notion of uh, like kind of serial entrepreneurship that um, is fantastically good advice if you keep that in your mind because and, and it plays uh, in a couple of ways. One is your first idea does not have to be the kind of world changing biggest thing. I'm right. going to go off and try to build this you know uh, multi billion dollar business. Um, it can be something more modest as long as it solves a customer problem um, and it's real. I think that's completely uh, encouraged and okay. But the other one is when you get to the point of an exit, uh, let's say. Um, you know, there's an acquisition possibility. I think too many entrepreneurs sometimes like, oh, well, I'm meant to kind of slog this through all the way until it becomes some of this huge thing. And, and that's fine. If you're onto an idea and you're passionate about that idea, um, you should, I encourage entrepreneurs to stick to it, but there is no shame in saying, hey, this particular idea has kind of run its course. Um, maybe the you know, company will be in better hands in, in the acquire, I'll get some money. And by, I've talked to hundreds of entrepreneurs, not quite as many as you, but, um, not once have I met an entrepreneur that's only had a single idea in their entire life, right? Like, like right. entrepreneurs will have other ideas. It's like, okay, you're running this company, you run it um, with as much focus as you possibly can. But then sometimes it's like, it's time to start the second chapter uh, or the next chapter, uh, wherever you are on your entrepreneurial journey. And, and, it's, and it's okay to do that, uh, yeah. So let's come to your third chapter. What was the genesis of HubSpot? What was going on in the industry and what was going on in your life and your orbit that led to HubSpot. Yeah, so um, so HubSpot, uh, first of all, was not supposed to happen. When I sold my first company, um, I had promised my wife that I'm not gonna do startups anymore, right? It's like, okay, I've made the money I needed to make, but you know, I had for 10 years, as long as she'd known me, because we had been uh, together since before I'd even started a company, right? When I was uh, still working as an engineer. So she had no idea that I was going to be an entrepreneur and no one would have guessed that. Um, so. When I sold it after 10 years, I'm just like, okay, well, I don't need to work anymore. So my plan was to go to graduate school, get my master's degree, uh, probably go get my PhD and then go teach. That was the original plan. And so that was kind of step one is, uh, you know, uh, going to MIT and going to grad school. Uh, but then, you know, the best laid plans, uh, as they say. Uh, so while in grad school, I met my co-founder, Brian Halligan, um, and we've just both had a shared passion for small and medium-sized businesses. We both came from tech, but it had different he came from a kind of sales and marketing background. I came from um, came from kind of product and engineering. And you know, the one kind of observation, and this is while we're in class at MIT, right? Uh, so that's where HubSpot was essentially born. Um, you know, the, the, we had a thesis that was emerging, which is that marketing was kind of broken. The way most people, most companies marketed, it's like, oh, I've got you know this budget, however big or small, I'm going to spend this budget to kind of take my message and kind of broadcast it to the world, right? I'm gonna buy a long list of email addresses, I'm gonna buy a long list of phone numbers and have people cold call. I'm gonna take ads out if I can, I'm gonna, you know, on newspapers or on, uh, based on how big your budget was, TV shows or whatever it is. And all those methods uh, have been fine for decades, um, but that over time, uh, they've become less and less effective. And this is uh, a marketing that we call outbound marketing, right? You're kind of pushing your message out. Yeah. And, and the reason they were less effective is because humans got better and better at blocking marketing messages, right? We don't open spammy email anymore. We don't answer random calls without looking at caller ID. Um, and we just are kind of immune to classic marketing. And so our, our thesis was uh, there's, now that the internet is here, there is a better way for companies to market, which is not based on how much money you have. It's based on how creative um, and how value adding you are, right? So start a blog, put, uh, put a video out there, help your prospective customers uh, learn the things they need to learn uh, in their industry. And, and this is what we call inbound marketing and, and we coined the term. 
And so the idea is take that same budget, however big or small, and instead of spending it all trying to blast the world with your message, spend it on creating value for your prospective customers, however that might be, in whatever media or channel you prefer. And that's a much more effective, sustainable way to grow a business. So that was the thesis. Um, as it turns out, um, so we were right about that thesis, um, but the products needed to kind of execute on that and do inbound marketing and, and uh, existed for you know big companies and sophisticated companies, uh, but didn't really exist for mere mortal kind of small. If you were a 30 person law firm or a 50 person manufacturing firm, you didn't likely have the wherewithal to say, oh, I'm going to put WordPress up as a blog and I'm going to connect it to Google Analytics. I'm going to use Wufu for my forums. I'm going to use this tool over here to post my blog to social media. And I'm going to try and pull all the analytics together and figure out which of my uh, marketing efforts are working or not. Uh, the tools were out there and they were great tools, uh, but no one had really pulled it all together. And so that was the genesis of HubSpot that said, uh, can we make it easy for a small and medium-sized business to kind of get on the internet instead of sitting on the sidelines, they should be enjoying the benefits of this connected world and being able to kind of connect to their customers in much more efficient ways and, and grow. Uh, can we make that possible for them? So that's that was the kind of idea behind it. Narmesh, uh, put this in uh, the timeline for us and uh, let's, brainstorm a little bit about what was happening in the outer universe while you were you and Brian were hatching this. Yep. So uh, I'll take you back. So it'll be, it's around 2005. Uh, the big term back then was Web 2.0. Uh, Tim O'Reilly had just coined. So there was this entire emergence around this kind of what Web 2.0 was essentially the second generation of the web, which is the first generation was people are putting webs, you know, simple websites up there in brochureware and things like that. Web 2.0 was essentially the interactive web, that instead of it just being static content, you could actually have applications on the web and, and do things. So that's what was happening. Um, you know, Salesforce was still a relatively young company, um, but Google Analytics existed, WordPress existed. Um, but there, and some companies were leveraging the web. You know, we take kind of blogging and all that for granted, but back in 2005, it was a relatively new thing. And, and the people that blogged, they didn't blog for business, right? They blogged for action. You were yeah. already blogging, right, in 2005? Uh, I started in 2005, yeah. Me too. So I think we we both started blogging at the same time because I guess that's when I started following you and, and you started following me because there weren't that many people blogging and blogging was not really understood because I just discovered blogging. I mean, I started blogging just as I discovered blogging. So I don't yeah. think people really understood blogging. So in, I mean, part of the inbound marketing thesis was that you were doing content marketing, you were producing content. Yes. Well, blogging kind of leads us into that concept, right? It does. And there's actually an interesting kind of story in between, which is uh, goes to the genesis. So we, so recall that we had this, you know, Brian and I had this idea that marketing was kind of broken, that it needed to shift from outbound to inbound marketing. Um, he's like, okay, great. Um, and Brian graduated a year ahead of me. So he graduated in 2005. Um, and his first job after graduation was to work as a, a entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm here in the Boston area. And his job mm -hmm. was to take all these portfolio companies and help them grow, right? And because mm -hmm. he'd been VP of sales, he'd worked in uh, sales and marketing his whole professional career. Um, and he and I would still meet like weekly uh, and just talk about kind of general ideas. Um, and, and I was working on my thesis at, at MIT, trying to finish uh, my academic work up. And um, here's the thing that kind of struck, struck us both. Um, so he was helping these portfolio companies, but then he would look at the traffic I was getting on my blog 
He's like, Darmesh, what are you doing on your blog that's getting all this traffic? I have these venture-backed, rich people that have VPs of marketing. Like, like these are real companies with real budgets doing real marketing, and yet you're getting 10 times the traffic on your blog. Like, how is yeah. that? Uh, and my response was, oh, well, you know, there's this kind of skill or this discipline called search engine optimization where you can optimize <laughs> your content so that you show up in Google search results. There are these new social media sites like Reddit, which had just started um, in, that, in that time frame. And so that way people, you know, you kind of get traffic from all these different sources. Um, and so this is when Brian said, oh, well, my portfolio companies need to do this. Like whatever you're doing on your blog, let's go do it over, over here in all these portfolio companies. And I'm like, oh, piece of cake. You know, you put WordPress up, you put Google Analytics up, you do here all those, you know, 18 things you need to do in order to kind of get, uh, get online. And he's like, oh man, that's a science project. They don't have the time for that, right? Their VP, their developers are off building their product. They don't have the time to go off and figure out all this technology to make this happen. And so that was the kind of proverbial kind of spark, right? Which is we identified that it was this kind of business issue, this trend in the market where, um, you know, marketing was kind of broken, but the existing products, although great, uh, we're not easy enough. We're not simple enough to, uh, for most companies to use and said, okay, so we'll go build that. Um, and we, you know, the, some of the best entrepreneurial advice I've given and I've heard is, oh, you know, when you're starting off as an entrepreneur, do like one thing really, really well, like do that one thing and get really good at it, which is, I think is brilliant advice. HubSpot in its, uh, at its Genesis did the exact opposite, right? We said, okay, we're going to build a blogging tool and social media and analytics and all of it and a website creator all on, on one platform. And when I get asked like, okay, well, why would you do something so crazy? And our response is that, you know, the whole reason for HubSpot to exist, the problem as we saw it was not that there weren't these tools out there. So we could have picked any one of those and said, well, we're not going to build a better analytics and Google analytics or a better blog than WordPress. That's not the problem customers have. The problem is this stuff is just too hard in order for us to make it easy. Um, we're going to have to build all of it in an integrated way, the, the same way Apple might do, is to say, okay, in order to get non-consumers consuming, uh, when they came out with the iPod, it wasn't, oh, we can hold more gigabytes or the gigabytes per dollar. It wasn't any of that. It was like, oh, you know, in order to enjoy digital music at that time, it's like you had to sort of know about technology, what an MP3 file was, and go to Napster or some of these illegal websites in order to get the music on your device. Like most people right. couldn't enjoy digital music. And Apple said, hey, we're going to give you a device for sure. You need that, but we're going to also have this software called iTunes. And we're also going to have content partnerships with all the music, uh, music studios. And so we're going to allow millions of people to enjoy digital music. It's not like they invented the MP3 player. They just made it accessible and we didn't right. you know, invent the marketing stack or marketing tools. We just made them accessible to an audience or a group of com companies that just couldn't cross that line before that was a, so, um, Narmesh, one question that comes to my mind here is um, how much of those existing tools were you able to bring in into your product design as that first, um, you know, let's say version one of HubSpot? Was it possible to integrate WordPress into that product, Google Analytics into that product, or did you have to do all of that from scratch? We did it from scratch, and this um, and here was our you know it's in hindsight entrepreneurs uh, are really good at rationalizing past uh, past actions, but um, our our thinking was that we could have tried to um, take WordPress and Google Analytics and kind of integrate them into this kind of larger platform, but then we wouldn't have been able to control the user experience in a way that we needed to control, right? So um, and once again, this is like the Apple way, it's kind of a fully integrated experience versus kind of cobbling together a bunch of different pieces because you have to kind of control the boundaries um, 
and be able to control the user experience in order to make it easy enough. And that was what we thought our overall mission was. And so we didn't build Google Analytics into it. We actually recreated it. We recreated WordPress, we recreated everything. And every line of code essentially was kind of built from scratch, uh, which has some implications, right? The big downside was the product was kind of nine miles wide and like two inches deep. And so mm -hmm. every one of its categories, um, the product sucked, right? Like every, if you look at every individual piece of HubSpot back in, in, um, in those years, um, they wouldn't even make the top three, top four in that category. Uh, and that was both deliberate and unavoidable. We didn't have the engineering staff uh, oh. or the resources or had the time, let's say we had infinite money, um, to have you know the, the, the leading blogging application or the leading social media or the leading analytics. Um, and one of the weird things I told the team back then is that if we have any one of our, let's say eight tools, uh, that is the number one or number two in its category, then we have misallocated resources because that is not the goal. The goal is not to be number one or two. The, the goal is to have this breadth and then the, the kind of some of the parts, um, the whole is greater than some of the parts. So, and over time, um, this is, you know, we raised capital and obviously, uh, you know, built out the product and engineering team over time, those individual tools now are in the, uh, most of them are in the top three in their individual categories, but that was not the case for the first five, seven years to come.